I'm sure for all of us, there have been times when we've done something or said something that we really, really regretted. And uh, I'm talking about one of those times that it's so frustrating and you can't believe you said it or did it that if you could get in a time machine and go back and punch yourself right in the face, you would because you were so stupid. And uh, one of those moments and memories for me came at the very first church that I pastored in, Mc- or, or youth pastored in McClenny. I was a youth pastor there at First Baptist Church, and, and the pastor there was an incredibly godly and humble man by the name of David Holt, and he was nothing, he, he, was, he was never anything except for loving and patient and kind to me. In fact, I owe so much to him. He was the first one who really challenged me with, with my view of what a pastor is. I used to think that it was only preaching and teaching, and he began to show me that it's far more than that. It's about shepherding a group in the body of Christ. And so I'm forever grateful for him, but it's because of his kindness that makes this memory so painful to me. See, the church really didn't seem to be going well, as many of us had thought. It seemed like people were really kind of stagnant in their faith, didn't really seem to be growing much. And and, uh, we certainly weren't growing numerically, not that that always means something, but but it, it just wasn't going well. And if things aren't going well at a church, guess who they blame? Well, yes, almost, almost exclusively the, the senior pastor of the church, and sometimes for good reasons, sometimes probably not for such good reasons. And there was a group of us that just wanted to be able to talk with the pastor and say, you know, kind of error, hey, this is what we think is kind of going wrong. And for me, I thought I knew what was going wrong. I thought it was the preaching of, of Pastor David. And, uh, and the reason for that is because he preached a gospel presentation every message. Now, before you sit back and go, what's wrong with that? I don't mean that he included a gospel presentation. I mean the entire message was a gospel presentation, nothing else. It was always, God is good, you're bad, you've sinned, you deserve hell. God is good, he sent Jesus Christ, you need to repent, believe, and place your faith in Jesus Christ. Now, that's a great sermon, if that's the only sermon you're ever going to preach. But at the same time, he never preached anything else in that. Every passage he preached was the same exact thing, no matter where it was or what subject he was preaching on. And so we gathered together, and I, in all of my youthful ignorance, uh, then began to speak with, 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 with great authority, being in my 20s. And I said to them, I passed, said, Pastor David, I think I know what the problem is. The problem is we need to graduate from the gospel. Look, the majority of the people, I, I cringe, even reminding myself of what I said. And I said, the majority of your people in that congregation are already believers. They don't need to constantly be reminded of the gospel. We know it already. We need to move on. We need to move on to more advanced things. And uh, I said that to him. And uh, in, in, in my defense, Uh, I'm right in one aspect. We are to not just teach one gospel presentation. We are to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. But 99.9% of what I just said was wrong. See, the truth of the matter is, is we can never graduate from the gospel. We can never graduate from the gospel. There's never a time that we shouldn't be going back to the gospel or looking forward to the gospel. It is true that a preacher, when he's called to preach, he's to preach to the gospel ministry. That means no matter what passage we're preaching, no matter what topic we're preaching on, it should be saturated with the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. These things are all true. And so the bottom line is this. It doesn't matter how long you've been a believer or I've been a believer or how much you've studied or how many degrees you have or how advanced in Christianity 
Christianity you think you are, the simple truth is you cannot and must not outgrow the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ. That is going to be the theme of our whole study in the weeks and the months to come. And we're to look what that looks like. What does that mean? In other words, the gospel is just not for lost people. It is for believers in Jesus Christ to rely on and to remind themselves of and to trust in as they continue to live a life unto God. So we're going to unpack that in the weeks to come. But as for today, what I want to do is use the first nine verses as kind of an introduction to our study. It's probably not super in-depth, but what we find here is that Paul actually provides three things for us in his introduction of this book of Galatians. Three things. Paul's rebuke. Paul's authority, and Paul's message. Let's begin with Paul's rebuke. Uh, When I talked with David Holt, and again, I cringe every time I I think of that moment, uh, he didn't really respond much. He He didn't try to bite back. He didn't fight back. He didn't defend himself. He just wasn't that kind of guy. But the Apostle Paul was cut from a completely different cloth. When he finds out that these Galatians have chosen to be able to go beyond the gospel, to be able to move beyond it, to graduate from it. You know what he does? He sternly rebukes them. That's what David Holt should have done to me. Look at verse 6. He says, I am astonished, which means I'm amazed. I'm blown away. I can't even fathom or understand that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. He goes, guys, I was just there with you. He goes, it seemed like just yesterday I was there with you and, and I was sharing the gospel and you came to faith in Jesus Christ and you were rejoicing in it. And he goes, and then here we are in the very next day, we're not just a few days removed, and now I find out that you're not only turning your back on me, but more importantly, you're turning your back on the, on the, on the message that I shared with you. And he goes on and he says, he goes actually to another gospel. He says, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you receive, let him be accursed. Verses 6 through 9 really provide for us what sometimes we uh, refer to as the occasion for writing. So here's what was going on when Paul was writing this letter. Paul had gone to the area of Galatia, began to preach the gospel, and of course people began to come to faith through the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church began to be formulated, but very soon Paul left and he went on to his next place and kind of redid that whole pattern all over again. Well, the moment that Paul left, you can read about this, by the way, in in, uh, Acts chapter 12 and 13, uh, as soon as he left, these false teachers came into and infiltrated the, the city inside the church. And when they come, they begin to instantly demean Paul. They begin to say that Paul is really not all that. They begin to question his credentials and the validity of the gospel message that he preached. And they taught that Paul's gospel was okay, but it was really insufficient. He told them some good things, but he didn't tell them everything. Now understand, this group of people is also often referred to as Judaizers. They were Jews who now believed in Christ. So they were professing believers in Jesus Christ. They would let you know that Christ was the Messiah, that he died for their sins, that he raised on the third day. They believed all of it. 
But when they came, they were just simply saying, Paul gave you this gospel that talked to you about the completed work of Christ, but we want to let you know if you truly want to be secure in your faith, if you truly want to be mature, if you truly want to be able to overcome your sinful flesh, then you can't just rely on what Christ did. Now you've got to rely on now what you do. So what he turned them to is he said, yeah, you need to believe in what Christ did for you, but now you need to put your trust in the law. You need to basically, in essence, become a Jew. He goes, you basically need to follow everything. You, you Gentile men, you need to be circumcised. You Gentile men need to be able to follow the, the dietary laws. You need to follow all the other laws that we find, the, the, uh, all the other Jewish laws. And apparently, they were incredibly persuasive because there were actually adult Gentile men, get this, that were circumcising themselves. I mean, if you, if you lived in the first century without modern, with the, the, the miracle of modern medicine, without any kind of anesthesia, and you're willing to circumcise yourself, you know that they are being convinced. This is serious stuff. They are being led completely astray. And so what Paul says here, and he's going to say through the rest of the book, is he's going to come back and he's going to say, guys, there are people who are adding to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and when you add anything to the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that we presented you, it is no longer the gospel. And he's serious about it. And that's why it's such a heavy rebuke. Now, now I am a, a mayonnaise lover. That may be disgusting to you, but that's okay. Um, I like mayonnaise. I, I like it on my hamburger, my sandwiches. But I'm, I'm a bit of a mayonnaise snob. I'm only a Hellman's mayonnaise guy. That's the only kind of mayonnaise I like. Get out of here with your Miracle Whip yuckiness. That's not mayonnaise. And some of you are Duke mayonnaise fans. Ah, forget now. Ah you unregenerate Duke mayonnaise people. And, um, and uh, there's, to me, there's only one mayonnaise. It's Hellman's mayonnaise. And we were growing up, and, and we grew up with five kids in our, in our, in our home and our family at one point. And, uh, and I used to think that was actually a large family. And then I came to Mercy Hill, and it's no longer large. And so um, I, I, my mom was always trying to actually cut costs, as you can imagine, with five kids. And so she would buy Hellman's mayonnaise for us because she knew that's all that we would ever ultimately eat. But then without us looking, she would buy some really cheap garbage mayonnaise. And then what she would do is as it began to come down, she would take that garbage mayonnaise and she would mix it into the Hellman's jar. And uh, she thought this would trick me, but I always caught it. The moment that I took the mayonnaise and put it on my sandwich, I would take one bite and go, mm -mm, no, something's wrong. Something's wrong with this immediately. She goes, what, what do you mean? Just, just eat up. That's Hellman's mayonnaise. That is not Hellman's mayonnaise. I don't know what it is. Uh, no, no. In fact, I do know what it is. That is an abomination. That's an abomination. <laughs> and I just wouldn't eat it. And the truth is, look, you can add something to something, but in adding something to something, that something is now no longer what it ultimately was. And this is what Paul is saying. Paul is coming to them and says, hey, listen, we've delivered a gospel message to you but the fact that somebody is now trying to add something in it, it is no longer what it was. And so he actually says to them, and listen to this rebuke, if anyone preaches another gospel other than the one that we've handed down to you, let him be accursed. Now the word accursed is literally anathema, but if you're really going to really give the most, the most literal translation that you can, Paul is saying this, if anyone preaches another gospel, let him be eternally damned. 
Let him be eternally damned. Now, that seems like really rough language. In fact, this is interesting because when Paul writes this, he doesn't normally write this way. Usually, he introduces himself, talks about the people that he's writing, yada, 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 says a bunch of things, and then immediately he begins with either a prayer or praise for the people. He doesn't do any of that. No prayer, no praise, just a rebuke, a stark rebuke. Now, why is that? Some people look at it and go, man, he's just kind of overblowing it. He's over-exaggerating. He's overreacting. You know, we males are oftentimes known for overreacting. Ladies, I can't speak for yourself, but I know that men do. Amen, ladies? They have a tendency to overreact. While some of you are such good, submissive wives, you don't say an amen there. That was your chance. Uh, but we often do. Uh, imagine, men, you, you get up late because your alarm doesn't go off. You're running late, you can't find your keys, so you become even later. Then you go to start the car, the car doesn't start. Now you know that you're in really big trouble. You finally get it started, but now you're hitting rush hour and you're going to be even more late. You finally get to work, you're supposed to be there at 9, you get there at 12 o'clock. There, there's there's, there's the, uh, the, the boss standing at the door and he's sitting there going, yeah, 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 I know, I know, I know. Well, you're in big trouble, buddy, and you get in trouble, you get reprimanded, and you're like, ah, just long story. And then he's like, man, just go to lunch, come out afterwards, I don't want to even look at you anymore. So you go off to lunch and you're like, man, I just need a good old barbecue sandwich. And you go to get a barbecue sandwich and they ran out of barbecue pork. And now you're really, really feeling down. And so then you get back in your car, you go back to work and you're working all day. And every customer that you deal with is just possessed. They're angry. They're mad. You can't do anything right. You finally get done and you begin to drive home. And everything that has happened to you that day has prepared you for a point of overreaction the moment you walk through that door. All right. Now you you look like, yeah, you don't know what I'm talking about. You and your wives know what I'm talking about. And so you open up the door and you see it. There's some spilt milk on the, uh, uh, on the kitchen table. And you go off. I mean, you go ballistic. Who's spoiled spilt milk? You know it's, it's been there all day. You can smell the spoiledness of the milk. And you're sitting there and you ask everybody together, everybody, get in there. And they all get in here and you're looking at the milk and you go, who did this? And of course, nobody in the house has, has, has spilt the milk. But you know, somebody must have spilt the house. They're just afraid to ultimately admit it. Who spilt this milk? You know what? This teaches me a lot of things about all of you. First of all, it tells me that you're unappreciative. You don't know the value of a gallon of milk and it is a lot. It is costly. And it also teaches me something about the way that you view me and your mama. You just think that we're here to be able to help you with whatever you want, give you everything according to you, whatever you want, and then we're there to be able to clean it all up when you're done, don't you? You think we're nothing more than a glorified maid service, and you know what? I can smell that milk is rotten. You know what it smells like? It smells like your rotten heart. <laughs> Thank you for that example, by the way. I appreciate it, brother. And then everybody in the room is looking with big eyes. And as the man of the house, you're sitting there going, oh, I think they got it. No, this is what they're thinking. This guy's nuts. <laughs> it's spoiled milk, man. It's spilt milk. It's not that big of a deal. It's why they say there's no need to cry over spilled milk. When they have a phrase about it, it can't possibly be a big deal. Now, if you end up coming home and you see your children gathered around the table, and each one of them have a glass of milk there and a box of razor blades next to it, and they're dipping those razor blades into the milk going to eat them like Oreo cookies, then that response is appropriate. When you come inside the door and you say, stop, 
Stop what you're doing. Put that down. And you begin to yell and you begin to do whatever you can to take it out of their hands carefully and to remove it. Then you begin to scold them, yell at them, raise your voice, and begin to discipline them in such a way that they'll never go to do it again. That's appropriate. Why? Because it's not an issue of taste. It's an issue of life or death. Your wife, nobody sits around and goes, dude, this guy's fully blown. All it is is a box of razor blades. Nobody says that because it's an issue of, of life and death. And when Paul comes on the scene and he begins to rebuke him and says, if anybody is preaching in this way, let him be damned to hell. It is fitting to what it is that these people are doing. They're sharing a gospel that once brought life and now is ultimately bringing death it's brutal language. It's harsh language. But what does all, any of this have to do with us? I mean, it's not like people are saying that, you know, angels are arriving and they're, they're preaching a false gospel today, are they? I would just suggest, and I say this, and this might hurt your feelings, whatever, and I've got wonderful family members that are Roman Catholic. The entire Roman Catholic Church has distorted the gospel of Jesus Christ. They will say that you are saved by grace through faith, but you must do all these things. That's adding to the gospel. It is now an abomination, not the life-giving gospel of Jesus Christ. In the early 1800s, there was a young man by the name of Joseph Smith. He said that he had a vision of an angel. And you know what? Nobody really cares about people preaching the Bible. If you, say, if you want people to listen, just say, an angel told me something. And he said, hey, an angel told me something. And, and he says, what he said is, all the other people have gotten it wrong. All the other denominations are corrupt. All their gospel is corrupt. And then short way later, he reappears, an angel appears to him, just exactly like this, and gives him the other testament of Jesus Christ, gives him the other gospel, straightens him out. And people were being led astray, and millions are led astray today from the very same thing. And, and don't think that we're exempt from this. There are preachers today who, who preach all the time, and they preach a prosperity gospel. In other words, hey, don't repent and believe in Christ so they can rescue from your sins. They're calling for you just to repent and believe in him. Not even repent, just believe in him so that he can make your life better and take all your difficulties away. All of these are false gospels. And the Bible says that, that anyone who preaches such a gospel ought to be a curse, even if it's an angel from heaven, even an angel from heaven. So you and I must be very careful that in all what we do, that we believe in the gospel, adding nothing, works, baptisms, sacraments, church membership, church attendance, or anything else. Get the gospel right, it brings life. Get the gospel wrong, it brings death. That's why Paul gives such a sharp rebuke. Number two, that's Paul's rebuke. Number two, Paul's authority. Paul's authority. Now, understanding in light of all that has happened with these false teachers, these false gospels, these people buying into it and believing it, then Paul is ready to introduce himself in the very beginning. This is how he opens his book. He opens his book, verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with him. So Paul identifies himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. He actually does this in nine of his 13 epistles that he writes. Uh, the word apostle literally means one who is sent. And when you look at the New Testament, it can be a little confusing because the word is often used, at least the Greek word, sometimes it's translated a little bit differently. But the Greek word is used to describe a lot of different people. Sometimes it's used in a very broad sense. In the broadest sense, it just means anybody who was sent out for ministry. 
could be a pastor, could be a minister, could be a missionary. The word is actually used to describe James and Epaphroditus, or excuse me, and Epaphroditus, uh, as, as well as Barnabas. So that's in the broad sense. Anybody who is being sent out for the purpose of ministry. But the Bible is also used in a very narrow sense, and that's how it's being used here for the Apostle Paul. It's used to describe those people who were specifically commissioned and sent out by Jesus Christ himself, by Jesus Christ himself. There were actually three primary criteria for an apostle to be deemed an apostle. We're talking about that strict, narrow sense apostle. And there were three things. Number one is you had to see the resurrected Christ. You had to be taught specifically by Jesus Christ, and you had to be commissioned by him. Uh, So who fits that? Well, the apostles, the 12 disciples of Jesus Christ, along with uh, Matthias, who ended up replacing Judas after his his fall. And and then, of course, the apostle Paul. Uh, Paul fit that because, number one, he saw the resurrected Christ. You remember on his road to Damascus, he he sees a blinding light. It's the person of Jesus Christ. He sees the resurrected Christ. He is taught by Christ. He goes into uh, the desert of Arabia for a period of three years, and there he's taught by Christ. And then, of course, he was commissioned by Christ. We see this in the book of Acts, don't we? In the beginning of Acts, when, or in a little bit beyond the first part of Acts, you see Paul, and after uh, Christ appears to him, he, he's blinded, he can't see, and a man by the name of Ananias is sent to him, and he says, this is what I want you to say to Paul. Tell him that I have chosen him to be an apostle unto the Gentiles. So he fits all three of these. And that's what he means when he comes out and he says, not from men, nor through men. Let me break that apart just a little bit more. When he says, not from men, he says, I wasn't called to preach the gospel to the Gentiles by man. People didn't vote and go, hey, you go, you, you go do it. You go preach the gospel. He goes, Jesus Christ called me. And I want to tell you that it's the same way even today for those who are truly called of God to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Preachers today are called by Jesus Christ. In other words, I didn't receive a calling from a man. I didn't go to a, a job fair one day, and somebody goes, hey, man, I, you, you, you want to know a good career path? Hey, man, those preachers making a lot of money, easy life. No, that's not why I went to become a pastor. It's because Christ called me. Now, for a lot of us, we could just kind of shake our head, but for a lot of us, that's a little confusing, isn't it? Christ called you. I remember people all the time when I began to struggle with this thing of ministry and the call to ministry, they were like, I would sit there and go, they go, what do you want to do with your life? I go, I think I want to preach and teach the word of God. I think I want to be a pastor. And then they would always say, but are you called? Have you received the call? And for whatever reason, they would always change their voice when they said that. It was more like, have you received the call of God? Have you received the call of God? And I would sit back and go, I don't know what that is. Uh, I haven't received a telephone call. I haven't heard an audible voice. How do I work? And this gracious older gentleman was like, hey, bro, there's not some esoteric weird thing out there. He goes, the Bible proves how a man knows if he's being called to the ministry. And here here it is. Maybe you're struggling with the call to gospel ministry. It, It takes three things. Number one, it takes a desire. In, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, Paul writing to Timothy said this. He says, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble 
task. In other words, it has to begin with this incredible uh, uh, desire to preach, and it's unending, and it keeps going, and you can go to other things, but it keeps pulling you back. It's the desire, and it's not a desire for a position. It's the desire for the work. It's the desire to shepherd people and to lead people and be in the Word and understand the Word and rightly divide the Word. It's for the Word. It's not for a position. And so this desire gets into this man, and he can't kick it. No matter what he does, he can't kick it. And so it begins with this desire, but there's more to it than that. Then there are qualifications. In 1 Timothy, in the book of Titus, you'll see a list of qualifications that Paul gives to Timothy for pastors, elders, teachers. And basically what he says there is, is this, is the majority of them are moral listings. They can't be given to much wine. They can't be a lover of money. Uh, they can't, um, uh, they, they got to be a husband of one wife, and it goes on and on and on. So those are moral qualifications, but then there are also uh, giftedness that they need to be able to have. It says they have to be apt to teach, and they have to be able to defend the faith. And so what happens is if God's going to call you to something, then he's going to equip you according to it, right? So a person who gets up and says, well, I'm called to preach, and every time he gets up, everybody falls asleep in the congregation. And I emphasize everybody because I always have one or two that fall asleep. Their names are right up on the board. No, I'm just kidding. They fall asleep. But if, if there's no fruit from the thing that they say that God is calling them to do, then it's very likely that God is not calling them to. But if they have a desire and they meet those qualifications, then the third aspect is this, is an affirmation. It's an affirmation of the local body church from other elders and from other pastors. What they do is young man comes and says, hey, man, I, I feel like God's calling to me to the ministry. And because they've been walking with him for a period of time, they say, hey, bro, we see that desire in you. We see that giftedness in you. Let's work through these qualifications to make sure you meet these qualifications. And then over a period of time, they look and they go, you know what? We think as well that God is calling you to the gospel ministry as well. So there's an affirmation. There is a, there's a, there's a um, affirming of uh, this young man, a commissioning. Sometimes we call it ordaining where they lay their hands on that man for the gospel ministry to be able to go forward. So I bring all that out because I don't know if God's calling anyone to, to, to the gospel ministry. Maybe you are. Maybe that will help. But I'm also connecting it because there's a difference between my calling and Paul's calling. So even though God has called me to preach the gospel, Jesus Christ himself did not commission me to the, to the gospel. The church commissioned me to be able to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's was different. Paul, it wasn't a church that commissioned him to go to the Gentiles. Who was it? It was the person of Jesus Christ. So what he's teaching us is this. Paul is on a completely different level of all the other members of that church, all the other, quote, pastors or leaders or elders of that church. He's in the stratosphere compared to the rest of these men. And so that's what he means when he says, nor through men. In other words, men didn't set me apart. God himself, Jesus Christ, set me apart. Now, why is Paul making this argument from the beginning? Why is he talking about this? Well, it deals with authority. Well, is, is Paul on some kind of power trip? Is Paul just sitting there and go, you need to listen to me. I'm the man of this house, right? We, we all have seen that, and that ends terribly for whatever man says that. But it's a horrible, horrible thing. Or does he just feel the compulsion to try to defend himself? Well, if you know Paul, he's, he never felt like he had to defend himself, did he? You remember when we were in, in, in our study in the book of Philippians? Just do this to make me feel better. Yeah, you remember that? Great. And um, so when we were in that, and we were in chapter 1, Paul, we find out that was in prison while he was writing these different epistles. And as he's writing Philippians, everybody begins to just go out and preach the gospel. 
And some of them were on board with Paul and they were doing it out of all the right motivations and all the reasons. He says, but some of them are doing it out of the wrong motivation. He says, some are doing it just to be able to cause me pain, to do me harm. And he goes, what shall we do then? What should we do with these guys that hate me but yet are preaching the true gospel of Jesus Christ? Here's how he says it. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul just simply said in Philippians, it doesn't matter what they think about me. It doesn't even matter what they say. It doesn't even matter the pain. What matters is that they get the gospel right. That's what's important. That's what impacts a world. That's what impacts people's eternity. And he goes, that's what's important. Now here, though, he defends himself. Why? Because they are attacking the gospel message. And his whole point here is this. If he is a legitimate messenger of the gospel, then the, messenger that, then the message that he speaks must also be right. That's why he goes back into this authority thing. And so here's, how, here's what he does. He opens the book. They keep going back and forth arguing, is Paul, is Paul not? Is he this? Is he not that? Is Paul's gospel right? Is it not? Paul gets up, and in the very first verse, he basically wins the entire argument. I'm the Apostle Paul, who was set apart by Jesus Christ, commissioned to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm one of only a few. My authority is greater than yours. Your, that means that the message that I have has been given, the, the gospel message, was given to me directly from Jesus Christ. When he says that, he's in essence saying, it doesn't matter what the rest of these men are saying. It doesn't matter what you're thinking. It doesn't matter how good it sounds. I'm telling you, this is a greater authority. It's the authority of Jesus Christ himself. He could have dropped the mic, walked right off, and that would have been the end of the book. But he continues to kind of work. And so we sit back and we think about this, and we think, as I'm studying this, this week, I, I, I remember, are we not under the same authority? 2,000 years later, we're studying the same book. The same book, under the same authority, because Jesus Christ led and inspired an apostle of Jesus Christ to write these very words, which are to be viewed as and understood as the very words of God. And here we are studying the very same thing. I wonder if that grips you. How do you view this time when we get together? I often wonder that. Are you kind of like, well, you know, we get to get to church every once in a while. Pastor Mike says some good things, and it's usually when he's quoting somebody else. But, you know, we, it's good. He gives it the good old try. You know, every once in a while, he's got a really, you know, funny illustration. I mean, that mayonnaise thing, that killed. That was great. I love that. Don't really know what the point was, but I like the mayonnaise thing. And, and, and do we come, and, and, and here's what I think some people do. I honestly think that they give almost no thought to what's about to happen when we gather together and the Word of God is open and preached. I think they honestly come together, and here's what they're thinking. They're thinking... You know what? You need a couple good words to get you through the difficult life and through these difficult weeks, and I just need to be able to hear something that's going to encourage me. Maybe I'll get a little bit of this. But we're not looking at it as authoritative. We're not looking at it as though God is about to speak. And, and, and I know what some of you are thinking. You go, whoa, this guy, let's get out of here. He's so full of himself. He thinks that God is speaking when he's speaking. Yeah, in a way. I absolutely believe that Christ and the Holy Spirit who gives this word to Paul. It is the word of God. He is an apostle, then delivers it here. It is the word of God. And then we, me, as a preacher of the word, or anybody else, Ryan or any other pastor, when they begin to preach the word, or any, anybody else, when they begin to preach the word and we get it right, 
We get it with the authorial intent, not taking things out of context, not making it say the things that we want it to be able to say, but we get it right as God had intended that text to see. God is very much speaking. And so it's not to be able to come to the house of God and for you and I to be able to sit there and go, well, I kind of like that and I kind of don't like that. That doesn't mean that you're not discerning. You need to be ever so discerning like the Bereans. You need to come and you need to say, okay, we're open. We're willing to be able to listen, but you better prove that it's in the text of Scripture. You better prove that this is God's word. If it's God's word, I bend and need the authority of Jesus Christ. That's the same authority he was presenting there is the same authority that you and I are under. So let me ask you this question. When you're making decisions, where do you go? Who's the ultimate authority? Do you sit back and you look at a bunch of men like they were here? These men, that these false teachers, were constantly suggesting that they were somebody. They were saying, hey, we're from First Baptist Church of, of, of uh, Jerusalem, and we've been sent out by Pastor James. And that's what a lot of the people believe that they were saying. We don't believe that any of that is ultimately true. But they're giving this long list of credentials. Can I just suggest something to you as a servant of Jesus Christ and a servant of Mercy Hill? Whatever you think and whatever you and I believe, if it does not match up to the authoritative word of God, it must be jettisoned. doesn't matter if I like it, if it sounds crafty, if it comes from some expert in some world. The word of God must be the final authority. All right, third thing. Third thing is Paul's message. Paul's message is rebuke. Uh, Paul's authority and now Paul's message. After establishing himself as this apostle... After, after we know, you and I know that they've got the gospel wrong, now he's going to give us the very essence of the gospel, the core of the gospel. And so here's what he does. Look what he says. He says, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, stop there just for a minute. He says, grace to you and peace, common offer. This is just what he's saying. He's saying, grace to you. In other words, may God bestow upon you the things that you don't deserve. All right, let, let you receive good things that you are not deserving of. And he says, then the outcome of that is peace. When we, deserve, when we get what we don't deserve, we find ourselves at peace with God. And because we're at peace with God, we then have a peace of God. Now notice what he says. He says, who gives himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. There are four parts to this. Let me go through them very quickly. You're like, four parts? We had three points, and it's lasted 40 minutes. Let me go very quickly, then listen quicker. All right, number one, what Jesus did. What Jesus did. Look at verse four. Who, which is meaning Jesus, gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. Many people think that Christianity that the whole point, a Christian, is somebody who listens to the teachings of Jesus, does it, and then teaches other people about that. That's right. That's what a disciple of Christ is, and that comes naturally. Those who are truly regenerated, truly come to faith in Jesus Christ, it's going to be natural for them to want his word, to submit to his word, to teach other people the word. It's the way that it works, not because of our own goodness, but because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us and because of a regenerate heart. That's the outcome. But that's not Christianity. Every religious leader in the world came to try to teach other people their ways and their teachings. Jesus did, Christ did not come primarily to teach you anything. He came to rescue you from your sin. He came to rescue you from your sin and my sin and then break the bonds and chains of sin so that you and I no longer have to live within it but now can live a redeemed life unto God. That's why he came. 
Number two, we first see what Jesus did. Number two, what God did. Notice this, he says, according to the will of our God and Father. This means that before, before time began, there was God, and God determined in his, in his brilliant mind that one day he would create this earth, the earth would come together, there would be all of these people, they would sin, they would rebel against him, and he would send his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on their behalf to pay for their sin debt and to reconcile them back unto God. It's his plan. Now, this is important to know because if you're born again today, it wasn't your plan. You didn't go seeking after God. You didn't sit there and go, you know, I think I'm in bad shape. I think I need to figure out some salvation here to make myself right with God. That's not how it worked. How it worked was this, is that you and I were alienated from God. We hated God. We wanted nothing to do with him. We were lost and we didn't even know it. The only way we came to know it was because he began to work in our lives with the power of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our minds and to be able to help us to understand the condition that we were ultimately in. That's all of God. It was his plan. That's why the Bible says that he is the author and the finisher of our faith. It's not, he's the author and we're the finisher of our faith. He's the author and finisher of our faith. And so not only did he initiate it, Jesus comes around and secures that salvation with his death, with his death and his burial. But then God comes up and he, apps, and he comes behind and he gives evidence that he has accepted this offering through what? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ does what? He pays for our sin. God did what? It was all his plan to save us to begin with and how we would be saved. What do we do? I want you to look back at that paragraph for a minute. Where are we mentioned in there? What are we doing in this process of salvation? What do we do to save ourselves? The only place we're really mentioned is this, is to deliver us from this present evil Age. The word deliver literally means rescued. You know what you did in your salvation? You were rescued. Well, what did you, what did you do to be rescued? Uh, nothing. He just rescued me. Well, what do you mean? Well, think of it this way. I, I, my wife likes cruises, so we'll try to go on one. She tries to go on 10, but I, I'll try to go on one with her. And everything is really cool, except for I don't like eating all that food. Everything that makes a cruise a cruise, I, I, don't, I, I guess I don't like. But uh, uh, I, the water scares me a little bit. I don't know if you ever go out and you walk on that deck, and here's the deck, and everybody's like leaned against it. I'm like hugging the wall on this side. I have this fear, and I don't know what it is. I don't know if it's threatening letters or something. I don't know what it is, or just being pastor long enough, but I'm afraid somebody's going to sneak up and throw me over the side. I don't know why I have that fear. But you know, I mean, you look over that thing, and you're like, man, it's really dark down there. And this isn't a jet ski. If I get off that thing, they may never get this thing turned around. I'll be at the bottom of the sea. I'll never be able to get there. And I think of myself out there just being swooshed. I know my mind is demented, but just being swooshed all around, being taken by the currents, not having any power and a storm coming and me being completely helpless. Imagine yourself in that situation. And all of a sudden from a distance, you see a light. That light begins to scan back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it begins to get closer and closer and closer. And you realize that this is a rescue ship. And that rescue ship comes up and it pulls right next to you. It finds you. It beelines that spotlight on you. And you begin to get some hope. And all of a sudden they come up to you and it's this big giant ship. And you sit there and you're looking up at it. And you're getting so excited because you believe they're going to get saved. And they come over and they take this big old hook. You don't have any power, any ability to be able to get yourself in that boat. You know what they do? They pick you up and they take you, take you by that life raft or whatever it is. They pull you up and they put you inside of that boat. 
And then they interview you afterwards because you were the dummy that fell over on the, uh, on the cruise. And then they interview you. They were like, what did you do to be rescued? And to be honest with you, I didn't do anything. I was lost. I was, had no control whatsoever of anything I was doing. And I just remember the hope of seeing that light. And the light got closer. And they searched. And it was their plan of rescue. And they followed me. And man, I couldn't even get myself at the end up into the boat. They just picked me up and my full weight my whole weight was placed on that boat in faith. That's what faith looks like. That's what salvation looks like. You didn't do anything to be able to be saved. And the more that you and I begin to understand it, the more you and I will love and appreciate the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. So what is the final outcome of all of this? Look at what he says. What does this mean? Here's the outcome. To whom be glory forever and ever. When you come to the point, when you come to the point where you sit there and go, I didn't do anything to be saved. He saved me by his own goodness. It was his plan from beginning to end. He accomplished it all. There's nothing else I need that he hasn't already accomplished for me. I've got it all. You sit there and you, you, you look around and you go to heaven. And listen, this is not how heaven's going to work. We're not all going to sit around and go, so tell me a little bit about how you got here. <coughs> So what did you do? Oh, that's a great story. What did you do to be able to get here? No. You know what heaven is? It's a place to whom be the glory forever and ever for Jesus Christ because we all know we had no part in his salvific plan for us. Three things very quickly. We got time. before the nursery workers begin to revolt. Number one, we need this study on the gospel. We don't need to graduate from it. We don't need to move beyond the gospel. We need this study because we are, some here are still not born again. If I were to ask some of you still, brother, how do you know that you're born again? How do you know that you're saved? How do you know that you have eternal life? And there will still be somewhere in your profession, I'm a good person. I do the right thing. I try to be the best father and husband that I can be. And you know what? You might very well be a great husband and a great father and an upstanding citizen. But you're a sinner and you're lost. And so hopefully by the time we get to this understanding, we'll get a better grip of what the grace of God in the gospel teaching is really all about. Second, some need this study because they have become legalists. Uh, We have legalists in this church. There's legalists in every church. In fact, again, I've got a list of you legalists right here. No, just kidding. But but there are. And here's what it looks like. There are individuals within a church that is constantly pulling out a ruler of the law and they're determining who's righteous and who's not righteous, who's spiritual and who's not spiritual. And usually their letter of the law is so ridiculous. It has to do with how many times you attend or has to do with how you pray or has to do with music you listen to or it has to do with, with how you worship. I mean, I've had folks, the craziest thing, I, I wish you could be a pastor sometimes. It is an amazing blessing. But the things that you hear will drive you to drink. I'm telling you, it is the craziest stuff that you will hear. I mean, there will be people 
He will say, I remember a person coming into the service and afterwards, I mean, she just kind of, when people are looking at you like this, you know it's bad, right? And so normally you're just like, please go out that way, please go out that way. And I try to jump off the stage and sometimes they nail me. And so the lady comes up and she goes, what was that? I go, what was what? What were you doing up there? I said, well, I was trying to preach. I Spent about 32 hours in it. Did I, did I not accomplish what? That's hard to do, spending 32 hours on something and not accomplishing it. And she goes, no, that wasn't preaching. I go, why was it not preaching? Now, at the time, we had this crazy, like, 80s plexiglass, um, you know, podium that you can kind of see through. Do you know what I'm talking about? And she goes, because of that podium, no man preaches the word of God behind a plexiglass podium. It must be wood. So you know what we did? We got us a wood podium. Amen? <laughs> so we got. But, it, but everybody's got an idea. You know, half, you know half of the problems that you deal with in a church is really just legalistic aspects of people's personalities and their backgrounds? You can't do this, you can't do that, this, this, that. Now, we want to speak where the, speak word, where the word speaks. We don't want to be apologetic towards it. We don't want to bend the scriptures. We want to live according to God. But it's God's standard, not your standard and not my standard. And so we need it. Why? Because th- those hearts, they, 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 they have not yet understood the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ. Number three, some need this study because they are born again, just like the Galatians were born again, but they've lost the joy of their salvation. There are some that we have inside of the church that you would just flat out say, hey, bro, I know that I'm born again by the grace through faith in Jesus Christ alone. I know it. I know I couldn't have done anything because I'm, I'm that aware of my own sinfulness. I know that I could have never saved myself, and I'm so grateful for him. But you live a life completely devoid of the gospel because now in your life, you're thinking, now I need to live by law. Now the only way for God to be able to accept me is if I do all the right things. And for you, a good day is if you, if, you, if you don't get angry at the kids, if you don't kick the dog, if everything goes okay, and you don't drive crazy on A1A, which is a miracle in and of itself, if you could do all those things, you get to the end of the day, and you're able to be able to relax. Why? Because you know that God is accepting of you. Then the days that you blow it, you're broken. It's not just broken of sin, it's broken of hope. It's broken of joy. Because how is God going to be able to accept you? I'll tell you how he's going to accept you. He's going to accept you now as he accepted you then, by grace through faith alone. And what I'm hoping that we'll do is that this will muster up, and for some of you and for myself as well, begin to build our hearts with joy and passion and love and overflow for the true truth of the gospel and the mercy and the grace of God. That's what I'm praying. We must not and cannot outgrow the gracious gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray.